Heavenly Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In the name of your Son, amen. What is the most important question you have ever been asked? Will you marry me? I think that occurs to a lot of people, right? Do you know why I pulled you over? That, that, that seems important in the moment. Uh, do you have an attorney? You know. uh, I asked my wife what she thought about that, and, and she said it was, would you like an epidural? And I'm not going to claim to fully appreciate that, but I, I get it, you know. You know, I, I listen to a lot of people talking about Jesus in the Bible, Sunday mornings, but also podcasts. I, I consume a lot of podcasts. And when you, when you listen to the same person, you start to hear them say things like, and I always notice, uh, this is one of the most important passages in the Bible, or it's their favorite passage, or some kind of exclusive club that's in it. And, and as you hear that, you start to think, well, how many favorites do you have, and, and how many things can be one of the most important things. And I'm going to say something like that this morning, and it's not for dramatic effect. I really think this is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Because today we're going to read a passage right at the heart of Mark's gospel. It's, it's the hinge on which the entire story turns. You see, up to now, Mark has been revealing more and more about what Jesus is like. And after this, he's going to focus on how Jesus is going to accomplish his mission. And the center of this center is a question, a question which I think is the most important question any of us are ever asked. It's a question that dives right into the heart of everything this book is about. And how we answer it sets the trajectory of our lives. So let's take a look. Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now Jesus and his disciples had most recently been in Bethsaida, where he opened the eyes of a blind man. And Brian talked last week about how this man's physical sight, the restoration of it, is a parable about the spiritual sight that is being restored in Jesus' followers. And now he's on his way far to the north, and this is what Jesus would have been looking at <laughs> had he had Google Maps. And actually, now that I see that up there, I don't think he would have used dark theme, probably. He's more of a light theme kind of guy. But, you know, he was going to have to wait 1,900 years for the 47-minute car ride, so he, his only option was the 10 hours by foot. It's a long way. And so, as you might expect, He's talking with his disciples. They're making some travel conversation. And it says, on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. That might sound familiar. It's the same list of possibilities that Herod's advisors gave him when Jesus was becoming known and his disciples were out on their two-by-two -two mission. But then Jesus he asked the question, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, 
you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus is the Christ. We probably haven't learned anything yet, but, but what does that mean? Today, this association between Jesus and the Christ, everybody knows it, right? If I stopped a random person on the street and said, what's the first word that comes to mind and said, Jesus, they would say Christ 99 times out of 100. But they might say that because they think it's his last name. It, it's not his last name. It's a, it's a title. The word in Greek is Christos. And Christos means someone who has been anointed. Now, anointing isn't a concept we really use much today, but what it literally means is pouring or smearing oil on something. So Jesus Christ is Jesus who has had oil poured on him. I think it's perfectly clear why that's important, right? Maybe not. Other translations have the word Messiah here in place of Christ. Messiah is the Englishification of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed. It's the same thing, smeared with oil. So Christ from the Greek, Messiah from the Hebrew, when you see those, they mean the same thing, anointed with oil. But what's the significance of being anointed? And if we started back in Genesis, any guess as to the first anointing with oil that we come to in the Bible? It's a rock. It's a rock. Jacob has betrayed his brother and is fleeing from him, and he gets tired, and he lies down on the ground, and he uses a rock for a pillow. This was thousands of years ago. They didn't have pillow technology. I guess they didn't have rolled-up blanket technology either because he sees this rock and it looks comfy. And he goes to sleep, and he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a ramp from the earth all the way up into the sky. And there are angels going up and down the ramp. And God speaks to him, and he repeats the blessing that he had given his grandfather Abraham, the blessing that Jacob's descendants would bring around a blessing for all families on earth. And when he wakes up, he sets his pillow rock up on end and he pours oil on it and says, surely this place is Beth-El, the house of God, the very gate of heaven. Jacob's anointing of a rock is to commemorate his vision of heaven and earth connecting. The things of God's space interacting with the things of our space, bringing this blessing for the entire world. And this is what anointing goes on to mean in the Old Testament. There are a lot of anointed things and people in the Old Testament, things that act as connections between heaven and earth, the altar in the temple, priests, and especially kings that represent the people to God and God to the people. All of these are designated, anointed for a purpose, a mission that links heaven and earth. And as the story of the Bible goes on, we see that these anointed people and things keep failing at their missions. Heaven and earth aren't getting closer together. They're drifting apart. And yet, God has promised to bless all people through this family, and the prophets predict that this will occur through a specific future Messiah. 
the people of Jesus' day are not awaiting for just another anointed one, but the anointed one. One who is designated not for a mission, but the mission, the blessing, to put things right for good. A restorer of restorers, an anointed one that will finally link heaven and earth, not symbolically or temporarily, but actually and irrevocably. And this is who Peter says Jesus is, the Messiah the Christ, which shouldn't surprise us. The first sentence of this book was the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But this next part is surprising. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Remember, this started as some conversation along the road, and now Peter is Satan. This is one of those, boy, that escalated quickly <laughs> kind of moments, right? What's going on here? This is meant to get our attention. This is the pivotal scene in Mark's gospel where we, we realize that Jesus is the expected Messiah and the Messiah is not what we were expecting. Peter, like everyone else, had an idea of what they wanted from the Messiah. They wanted a restored Israel. They wanted the Romans sent home. They wanted a restoration of the Israel of King David to be powerful, to matter. And being rejected and killed doesn't cut it. So Peter takes Jesus aside. I know who you are. Don't embarrass us. You can't die. We need you to restore the kingdom. Run out our enemies. And in saying this, he's trying to carry earth up Jacob's ramp instead of bringing heaven down. Peter is offering Jesus the same thing he was tempted with in the wilderness. Power over the nations, dominion of others. So, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is not the kind of savior Peter was expecting. And I think most of us who have been around the church for a while, we, we understand this idea that the people in Jesus' time didn't know what he was about. They didn't expect that kind of savior. But that's not an ancient problem only. What kind of savior are we expecting? What did you come to Jesus to be saved from? We're here because we're following Jesus and where do we expect that following to lead? Where we want to go? Or where Jesus is going? You know, I made a Gmail account back in 2004 when it first launched. You had to be invited. You remember that? Like you would, you got an invite and you'd get invites, you could send them to people. And I got in early enough 
that I was able to get just my first initial and last name as my Gmail account, which is pretty nice, except I get all kinds of email that is not meant for me. And my last name is not particularly common. I'd call it uncommon. I can't imagine what msmith at gmail.com must be like. <laughs> but I have all kinds of shopping accounts. I, I have bought a lot of things at Lululemon. I get email receipts <laughs> all the time. I have a Toyota Tacoma that needs an oil change. I have a high schooler who missed volleyball practice. I once got an email entitled Sick Shrink, letting me know that my appointment was canceled. I received architectural plans to a Wolfgang Puck restaurant in Washington, D.C. and was asked to approve them. I said, looks great, put it up. I didn't really say that. I always think about things like that though, right? Like I always want to do that and I don't. I used to get overtime authorization forms from The Voice, like the TV show, you know? Yeah, all kinds of things. You know, one of the first times this happened, I got an email from a bank that said I'd opened an account at a bank in Texas. And I, this worried me a lot. And this hadn't really happened very much. And I thought, someone's stealing my identity. So I didn't trust the email. I went on Google Maps, and I, there, there is a bank at that address. And I found their website, and I called them and said, hey, I'm Aaron. I didn't do this. I'm worried you know, somebody has my information. And they were super helpful. They read me the address, the phone number, the social security number, used to open this account, and none of them were mine. And I realized there was an identity theft going on, and I am now the thief, right? <laughs> All of these people successfully emailed A. Embry, but they didn't know who they were talking to. Like, they wanted someone who was going to approve their architectural plans, but they just got me. Peter successfully identified Jesus as the Christ. He, he's right about that. But he didn't yet understand who he was talking to. He expected a certain kind of Messiah. A Messiah that would restore the world to what Peter thought it should be. So if starting a rebellion... Sending the Romans packing wasn't the mission of Jesus, not what he was anointed for. Well, what is? Let's keep reading. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Does this make anyone uncomfortable? Like, the Messiah is our Savior. He's supposed to be helping us. So, so what's this about denying ourselves and losing our lives and, and being ashamed of us? What's he saying? Well, for one, it seems like he's much more interested in the condition of our hearts than in the condition of our kingdoms. Like, who's in charge, right? He doesn't talk about that. In this passage, it's complex. There's a lot of things here. But another thing that is clear 
is that following Jesus is meant to change us. Make the follower look more like Jesus. So let's introspect a little bit. Let's turn the question around. Who do people say you are? Not the people, but people in your life who walk with you, who know you. If they had to use one word, who would they say you are? Would they say you're an American, a Republican, an Epicurean, a sports fan, a Christian? What kind of yan? I couldn't think of any more. <laughs> Christian is a bit of a difficult word today because a lot of people claim it and they don't all mean the same thing. But we'll use it the way it's used in the New Testament. It actually only appears three times, and it seems to be what people who don't follow Christ call people who do. It's Christianos in the Greek, and it means belonging to the anointed one. Would the people who are closest to you describe you as belonging to the anointed one, especially the people who don't claim that for themselves? Consider that the extent to which we look like Jesus to others is the extent to which we have embraced what Jesus is saying in this passage. That in trying to save our lives, we'll lose them. And that if we lose our lives for his sake, we'll save them. But what does that mean? I mean, is he saying we'll be like actually murdered for following him? Not too likely, right? Especially where we live and when we live. You know, the statement doesn't even really make sense on the surface, right? I mean, to lose your life to save it, to save your life to lose it, to have X, you have to lose X. It's not usually how things work. But I think this is telling us what the Messiah's mission really is. He's not here to restore a nation, but to restore people's lives all of us, to what we should be. You see, life isn't just drawing breath, and losing your life doesn't always mean dying. People use the phrase, my life is ruined. They don't mean they're dead. They mean the things they were reaching for seem out of grasp, right? You know, I'm an engineer, and we design products, and when we design a product, we have goals for that product, things we want it to be like. You know, how, what kind of performance is it gonna have? How much energy is it gonna use? How much is it gonna cost? How big is it gonna be? And to help us achieve those goals, we create a computer simulation of the product, a model that has all of the things we want it to have. And we can go in and we can tweak the little details and the little decisions that we can make to decide if each one is gonna take us closer to the thing we want it to be or further away. And each of us, we do this too. We have a simulation of ourselves in our mind, right? Like a future self that has the things we want. What kind of job? How much money? How much power? How much influence? Who we'll be friends with? Who we won't be friends with? How we'll dress? What kind of spouse? What kind of kids? What will people think of us? All these things form our idea of our life, 
the good life. And we feed our decisions into this simulation to try to predict if they'll bring us closer or further from that life. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, who we talk to, who we don't talk to. Will we let that wrong against us go unavenged? And that simulation, that ideal state we're trying to save is the life Jesus says we'll lose. It's the self we must deny. It's the things of men that Peter was thinking of when he rebuked Jesus. You see, our simulation is broken, and it's the worst kind of broken, sometimes broken, because sometimes it works, and we think we can trust it, but we can't. It's unreliable. You know, Eve knew what she wanted, to be wise, to know good from evil, and she fed the should I take the fruit decision into her simulation, and it said, yeah, that'll do the trick. And it did not. What she thought was flourishing was ruin. Adam too, and everyone since. Almost everyone. Our simulations are broken. This has happened to all of us, right? We thought it would be good, and it wasn't. And it's those broken simulations Jesus wants to save us from. What Jesus is saying here is that he won't be yet another input into our current way of thinking, another lever we can pull on to achieve our life goals. Jesus wants us to let that vision we carry of our lives die, not just let it die, nail it to the cross and replace it with a different simulation, with different definitions of success, a different kind of life, a bigger kind of life. In our community group several weeks ago, we were talking about uh, what do most people think the good life is? What are people striving for? And Anushri said, white picket fence, two cars, the American dream. Now, if you don't know her, Anushri is a financial advisor. She understands this more than most people. People come to her every day telling her what they want. And this, this white picket fence, like, you know, everybody knows what that means. It's emblematic of this American dream idea. And we were just talking and we said, you know, if there's an American dream, what's the Christian dream? Is there a pithy little phrase that describes the kind of life Jesus says he has for us? If we let go of our current one. And someone said, love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. That's the Christian dream. And the fruit of the Spirit, it's relational. It's about how we love others and seek their good. It's a vision of our lives that is fundamentally other-centric. Love your neighbor as yourself. Spend all the time and energy we would use furthering our own goals on others. I think if we could see the simulation that Jesus runs in his mind, we would see its goals aren't the good life for Jesus. That's why he rejected 
Satan's offer in the wilderness. It's why he rejected Peter's offer on the road to Caesarea Philippi. And it's why he accepted the cup in the garden and let himself be humiliated and nailed to a cross. Jesus makes his decisions based on seeking the flourishing of others, even when it costs him his life. So what do we do? Jesus is saying, set down how we think about ourselves and replace it. And I don't know how to do that. How do we change the parameters of our simulation? First of all, we have to recognize it's going to hurt. It's going to feel costly. It's going to feel like dying. As we start to conform our decisions to the model of Jesus, alarm bells will be going off in our head. Error, error, you are losing the things you want. The goal state, it's slipping away. And if not for one thing, we would all heed those warnings and go back to nurturing our fleshly desires. And that one thing is the question turned around one more time. Who does Jesus say you are? He says you are completely known and completely loved. Completely worth the price he paid for your life and completely worth living in you to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You know, after being rebuked by Jesus in this passage, Peter didn't change his simulation, not entirely at least. When Jesus is arrested, people suspect that Peter was one of Jesus' followers, and Peter denies it. They ask him, aren't you one of those Jesus people? And his simulation tells him, danger, your life, your freedom, this will at least be very embarrassing, say no. And he says, I don't know him. Peter, who says Jesus is the Christ in this passage now, doesn't know him. He was ashamed of Jesus. And the last time we see Peter in this gospel, when the narrative leaves him, he's broken and weeping because he betrayed his friend. But God's grace is more than Peter's failure, and it's more than ours. Jesus pays the price of our betrayal. When Mary finds the empty tomb at the end of Mark, the angel tells her, Jesus has risen, go tell the disciples, even Peter. Even Peter. You've not been more ashamed of Christ than Peter was. And Christ died for Peter and for you, and you are no less restored than Peter is. You know, in Acts 3, probably not much more than a year after this discussion on the road, after Jesus has died and risen and ascended to heaven, Peter is in the temple, and a crippled beggar asks him for money. And it says the beggar fixed his attention on him, expecting to receive something. And Peter says, I don't have any money. But what I'll give you, or I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, 
rise up and walk. And the beggar leapt into the temple, praising God. Peter knows what kind of Messiah Jesus is now, and he is not ashamed. And the beggar, the beggar was running his simulation. If I reach out my hand, maybe I'll get a coin. That was the best outcome he could imagine. And instead of a coin, he got life in his body, legs that work. His simulated life was way too small. It did not account for Peter on the continued mission of the Messiah, restoring all things, blessing all people, and friends, accessing that kind of restoring life, it's not about our effort. It's not the American dream. It's not something we earn. We should be like the beggar. Reach out your hand and expect to receive something. That's what faith is. And know that it'll be better than a coin. You know, to some of us, Jesus may seem harsh in this passage. Get behind me, Satan, and being ashamed. And but let's go back to the question. Who do you say I am? The very fact that it's a question at all is amazing. Jesus is so gentle. He's the king of all things. We sang about that this morning. Creator, sustainer, unimaginable power, and he appears among us and could have rightfully said, I am God, kneel before me. But he asks, invites us into a conversation, into relationship where it matters what we say to him. How we answer this question is how much power Jesus uses in our life. Not how much he has, he's the king. How much he uses. If we say he's an interesting guy with some nice ideas, Sunday morning hobby, he'll take us that far and he won't make us go any further. You can have your coin. But if we say he is prophet and priest and king, our king, the king, and worth letting go of our idea of life so we can be swept up into his, he will take us where he's going. And notice it's not, who do you think I am? It's not a private idea to keep to yourself. It's who do you say I am? Who do you tell others I am? It's not a command. It's an invitation to be forwarded. We follow Jesus not against our own will, but holding hands with the person who invited us and the person we invited. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so big and so powerful, and we are so small, and somehow you listen 
to what we say. It matters to you. You don't want our blind obedience. You want us to know you because you know us. You know us. You know every inclination of our hearts. And even after seeing those things, you have gone to such great lengths and paid such a high price for us. And we thank you. You are good. Lord, help us to declare who you are. Help us to see the evidence of what you are doing in our lives and know that it is you. Help us to lay down our ideas of where we should be going, of where things should be going, and accept your invitation and follow you. In Jesus' In Jesus' name we pray, amen.